This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey. Returning to Eden is a book by Heather Hamilton for people who resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims. After having a mystical experience that shattered her evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton found herself on the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden re-examines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the Whale, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the Virgin Birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a white-knuckled grip on implausible beliefs, but a relaxation into a deep inner knowing. You can purchase Returning to Eden by Heather Hamilton at Amazon.com or at ReturningToEden.com. Spring is basically a second holiday season. Mother's Day, Father's Day, weddings, the list goes on. And what better way to celebrate them than with Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly is the easiest way to shop local stores and compare prices on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered to your door. Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hi, friends. Welcome back. How are you? Welcome to the New Evangelicals Podcast. I am your host, Tim Whitaker. This is a special episode that is so good. Oh, I just recorded it. I had Trip Fuller and Diana Butler Bass on the podcast. They are amazing human beings doing fantastic work. I'm sure by now many of you have heard Trip on the podcast before. And Diana Butler Bass is someone doing phenomenal work in, 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 in the world of church history and just thinking about better paths forward in American uh, Christian culture. They are doing a class together over on Trip's platform, Homebrew Christianity, about Lent. And I know for a lot of us evangelicals, what the hell is Lent? What do we do with Lent? Is Lent something that like religious people do? Because in my tradition, we just pretended that it was something that was like not good and that only the Catholics did. But it turns out Lent is part of the church calendar. Yes, that's right. The church has a calendar, friends. And Diana and Tripp are doing this whole series on Lent and what it means to, to look at the American saints in our history in a cynical age. This is a very... Um, um, powerful conversation. We talk about death. We talk about, about better paths forward in the Christian tradition. We talk about what saints can teach us about, about being more faithful to the way of Jesus. So this is kind of a teaser into their class. You can listen to um, this episode, then go to our show notes, click on the link, and you can sign up there for the class. It starts February 27th. It is free or you can donate. But as you're going to find out, the max donation 
you can donate is a million to one dollars. I know, I know that cuts off a lot of you, but there is a limit here. And you'll hear Trip explain more of that in the podcast. So I really hope that you enjoy this special episode. All right, friends, that's all I got for now. Thanks for being here. I'll talk to you all next time. All right. Um, wow. I, I feel like I have the Holy Trinity minus myself on Ooh. this podcast. So I am joined here with Diana Butler Bass and Trip Fuller. I mean, I would argue two legends. They probably wouldn't say that about themselves, so I'll say it. But it is really good to have both of you here. Uh, thanks for making time and coming on the podcast. It means a lot. Oh, yeah. I'm ready. I'm ready, Tim. <laughs> I was thinking dynamic duo rather than Holy Trinity, but whatever. Yeah, well, he's, he's a recovering evangelical, so he, uh, he, he never took the, the Trinity seriously anyway. They still think the third person's the Bible. That, that's correct. Yeah, yeah I mean, listen, it, it, you're right. <laughs> it's what it is. So I, I'm, I'm honestly excited for this conversation because – um, we're talking about Lent on this on this episode, which is something that is foreign to me. We'll get that we'll get into that in a minute. But first, I mean, Trip, do you want to maybe, maybe plug uh, a the reason why we're even having this conversation in the class that you and Diana are doing on your platform, uh, Homebrewed uh, Christianity? Oh yeah, yeah. So this Lent, um, Diana and I are doing an online group called Empty Altars, which you can go to emptyaltars.com. and the subtitles American Saints in a Cynical Age. Um, and uh, I'll let Diana say where the origin for the class came from. But the, the, the big thing to know about this is it's an online group where we get together and we look at American saints. And then what would it be like to inherit our faith? Uh, and what stories do we lift up at a time, right, where our altars are empty, our, our monuments have been taken down? Like, do we, what, what does it even mean to be Christian and pass those stories on to the next generation and such when we all know too well? all the shit that's gone wrong, right? Like, I think that, 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 what do we do with that task? And the people I like to figure that out with are super nerd church historians who are also excellent communicators to the people who just happen to be among the kindest people I know. And that was why, uh, it, it, Diane and I decided to do it together. Um, and, and, and know that the, the group is one where it can really be open uh, to anyone. You can join live each Monday during Lent, which is, uh, the 40 day journey up to Easter, by the way. Um, um, and you can join live, but all the videos and audio for each session will get posted in the group so you can go at your own pace or on your own time. And it's donation based anywhere between zero and a million, but not a million and one dollar donation, Tim, uh, kicking them out, blocking them forever. They can never join again. I'll make sure to highlight that feature when, when, when we Good. plug the class and put it in the show notes. Not a million and one or yeah, else you're actually got standards. No, I agree. I agree. <laughs> But Diana, is- I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to the 999,000 donation. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so so Diana, I mean, American Saints in the Cynical Age. What is some of the backstory to come up with like that that uh, sub subtitle? Well, it's interesting because actually Trip came up with a subtitle. Mm. I was the one who came up with the title, Empty Altars, although I didn't really come up with it because um, a pastor in Richmond, Virginia, came up with it. Last uh, fall, I was speaking at the most liberal Baptist church in in Richmond, Virginia, and there are such things in Richmond, Virginia. And um, the pastor and I were just chatting 
before my talk, which was supposed to be about history. And he said, have you driven down Monument Avenue lately? And Monument Avenue in Richmond is the long boulevard that was put up primarily during Reconstruction or right after Reconstruction that celebrates all of the heroes of the Confederacy. So you would look down this beautiful wide boulevard and there'd be these circles. And in each circle for miles, there would be a statue uh, to a general or some other military leader of the lost cause. And um, that's been hugely contended in recent years here in Virginia, as these statues have been everywhere. And so what's happened is the state of Virginia finally took down all of those statues. And so the pastor said, when he said, have you driven down Monument Avenue lately? I knew exactly what he meant. He was asking me if I'd seen all of those uh, spaces where the Confederate figures used to be standing. And I said, um, no, I haven't driven down it recently, but I, I, you know, I know what's going on. And he just looked at me and he kind of had a really interesting look on his face. And he said, you know, every time I drive down there, I see empty altars everywhere. And as soon as he said that, I went, oh my gosh, that is the greatest title for a book because that's basically the age we're living in. We're living in an age of iconoclasm, the idea of taking down statues. And we have these empty public spaces now, empty altars. And so I, I mentioned this to, to Tripp. And the question, of course, is what do you put up once the altars are empty? Yeah. And so this became the beginning of this this project that Trip and I want to work on Lent is to sort of think through um who are the saints we'd put up on the altars for today. Um I love that. Um and I think the you know for me as a uh someone who's who's pretty fresh out of evangelicalism the first thing i think of is okay that's cool but how does it relate to lent you know like to me they just seem like two very separate distinct things and i think that's because for me and i think i'm i'm assuming for a lot of the audience you know, Lent was not in my lexicon unless it was kind of making fun of the catholic people for putting ashes on their head and maybe like not not eating fish or something. Uh, and it was just super religious. It was what the religious people did, but we, you know, we had freedom in Christ. So, so Lent, I mean, who cares about that? That's kind of how I was, I was taught. I mean, I, I wouldn't say directly taught, but that was kind of the air that I breathed of kind of the perspective uh, of what Lent is. And, and ultimately because we have freedom in Christ, it doesn't really matter anymore. It was kind of the vibe that I got spending 33 years in, you know, evangelical spaces ranging from more conservative Baptist reformed all the way through more charismatic. So I think it might be good to kind of assume that, assume that, that the audience has that same kind of vibe in their mind. Like, like Tim, what are you doing bringing on, you know, Diana and Tripp to talk about Lent? Why don't we just start maybe a big picture overview? What exactly is Lent? And then the follow-up question is why should we care about it today? <laughs> I'm going to let Trip start, but I, I can't resist throwing in just one comment at the beginning here. And that is, I'm an Episcopalian, and we we uh, celebrate Lent, and nobody has ever accused the Episcopal Church of being super religious. <laughs> so- <laughs> 
<laughs> That's funny. Uh, well, in my tradition, you weren't even yeah, Christian, well, so you know, you guys didn't even exist. <laughs> See, there you go. I mean, we're talking to a whole big group of people who are hanging around evangelicalism. They're probably thinking, "Oh my gosh, what cult does she belong to?" You know. <laughs> but but trip, why don't you yeah, go well, ahead? Well, I would just say, uh, especially thinking of uh, Tim, you often use the image of people that, especially in the last few years. Uh, are sticking their head out of the evangelical basement and learning that there's all these other rooms in the larger church and going, oh, well, I, I, I didn't know these existed. Well, in a whole bunch of those rooms, uh, the, the church shares a calendar um, it, where each year, and there's a three-year cycle, a different texts are center uh, each Sunday in worship. Now, this is why if you go to a Catholic church, a mainline Protestant church, Orthodox church, and such, it, you see multiple readings of the Bible throughout the worship service, and and they're orchestrated so that like the psalm that gets read, and the Hebrew Bible text that's read, the gospel text that's read, one from the epistles, all these texts are, are there to read and interpret each other together. And so it's very strategically organized, and, and not only are the texts there to help us read scripture in the fullness of all of the witness of the people of Israel and the church, but also uh, it, it, it each year tells the story uh, following one of the gospels of Jesus's own life and, um, and his relationship to the disciples and the ministry and, and such. Um, and, and when you, when you start to tell that story, there are different seasons, right? So we just got done with Christmas. Well, the whole, the whole weeks, four weeks coming up that are Advent. And we spent time thinking about uh, the yearning for God's peace and justice and love and such. And in the, in the text out of the Hebrew prophets, desiring the goodness of God to be man manifest in the material world. And then what is it like to wait and attend to the coming of God, not just right in the person of Jesus, but in our own lives and in our own history in place. And so we prayed uh, like, come Lord Jesus regularly. Right. And it's both adjoining the people of Israel and their recognition that the world isn't as God desires it and uh, joining uh, the, the church's desire that the, the, the resurrection of Christ becomes the resurrection of all creation. Like you see in Paul, like you see the, the, the seasons are picking up and helping us think on these particular facets of scripture. Well, Lent begins on Ash Wednesday. Uh, it, yes, there are funny things on there. I'll just be honest. 15 years as a minister, it is the only day, you know, you're not lying. It's when you get there and you remind everyone you're going to die. You like from dust you came and dust you will return. And what happens in that recognition of our finitude, our death? When you think about dying, when you think about your finitude and all those you know, you ask the question of why and meaning. And what is the church's response? Lent. We're going to spend 40 days thinking not just about our conclusions about Jesus, the Christ, son of the living God, second person of the Trinity. We're going to look at what it means for Jesus to have been the Christ. And so the text each year, right? Three years, pick a different gospel, but you look at how Jesus's own identity, how he understood his vocation. And then you look at how um, the, the disciples wrestled with it. What did it mean to join the movement of the kingdom of God? What did it mean to participate in it? And, and, and so over Lent, each year we focus on different texts, but the theme is always based on discipleship. And it says, as we go to the cross and through it to resurrection, let us as a church spend a season asking ourselves the questions Jesus forced on his disciples. What does it mean to call him the Christ? Does it mean like James and John, we want to be put on the throne next to him when we get to uh, to Jerusalem? 
or are we having projections of, of the wrong kind of power? Does it mean uh, like Peter, where we cut Jesus off and go, don't go to Jerusalem and face down the imperial powers. You'll get yourself killed. And then Jesus says, what? Get behind me, Satan, right? The gospels are full of, of, of not like convincing us Jesus is the Christ, but challenging disciples to what does the content of that confession mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? So Lent, uh, if you're trying to understand it for people that don't know it, is the time the church, uh, for the people that celebrate it, focus specifically on how as individuals and as a community, the body of Christ, we wrestle with the call of discipleship. And it's Jesus's fidelity to God uh, that we that, that leads to the cross. And it's our attempt to have that mind of Christ, that wrestling with that is something that's accomplished in Lent. Yes, it you know, generally means we do practices Jesus told us disciples to do like fast. But, um, you know, Jesus said, when you fast, he didn't say, well, once I get raised, you don't have to fast anymore, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount. And when you give and when you love, uh, there are these practices that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew, the Sermon on the Plain, those kinds of things frame uh, the practices of Lent. Because the goal of the church is to not just get to the end and we celebrate the passion of Jesus, Passion Week and the resurrection, but that we internalize and wrestle with ourselves whether that passion of Jesus is becomes our own passion. How in this time can the way we live and embody our faith be challenged just like Jesus challenged his disciples to be faithful to the vision of the kingdom of God of the one he called Abba? So it, it is, uh, yes, it's, you know, religious-y. In a world where everyone's not, you know, Catholic or deep or in a, in a tradition. But uh, I think the heart of it is something that, at least for me, when I, I grew up a Baptist church planter's kid in rural North Carolina, I, I didn't know what Lent was. It sounded like a Roman, uh, you know, it was too Romanish, you know, too Catholic and stuff. But when I discovered <laughs> it, I thought, oh, like there's nothing more important for Baptists than personal discipleship. And this is a time every week at church, our readings and our focus is, hey, Hey, you don't get to outsource being faithful to the one that has redeemed you. So I think that is broadly uh, all the different parts of the church that celebrate it. Lent is giving that invitation. <laughs> Anything you want to add to that, Diana? Yeah, I think it's, I think it trips um, explanation is really interesting because it actually comes right up next to mine. And that's fascinating because we come from two such different places. I grew up uh, mainline United Methodist. I became an evangelical for a while. And so uh, Lent sort of disappeared from my life from the time I was about 15 to maybe 28 or so. But then um, I also became, I became an Episcopalian. And so Lent is a, a super important part of the uh, part of the Christian year. And I think that for me, when I, when I, I think about the Christian year, which Tripp just explained a bit of, um, their seasons are, are Advent, uh, Christmas, Epiphany, uh, which is mostly in January and early February. It's a season of the manifestation of God's light in the world. Um, and then comes Lent, Easter, and then a long season called Ordinary Time. And Ordinary Time is about the teachings of Jesus. And so all these other seasons, Advent, um, Christmas, Epiphany, Easter season, and Ordinary Time are all about Jesus. Jesus' teachings, the work of Jesus, Jesus' birth, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, all of that. Lent is the only church season that's about us. 
It is a time that the church lays aside for the people of God to reflect on our own state and the state of our communities and the state of our world and to explore um, the, the, the toxic environments in which we live, how sin pollutes our lives, how we are misdirected, um, the mistakes we have made, uh, the wrongs we have committed by on purpose or by accident, and it and Lent then ask us to correct those. Um, and so uh, it, it's a really interesting season in that way. And it, it used to be, I think, in the old-fashioned sort of take on Lent, and and this would be uh, very very Catholic that I certainly learned growing up in uh, Baltimore when I was a little kid, and. Although we were Methodists and we did have Lent, we didn't do it like the Catholics across the street. Um, whereas Lent was seen as being this sort of holiday where, you know, you, you beat yourself on the back. Uh, oh, woe is me. Um, you're going to give up something for Lent. Uh, you're going to you know, go through these sorts of exercises of extraordinary self-denial. And so it used to be that kind of frame around Lent. You're a terrible sinner and you're going to do these practices that are going to whip your soul into order before Easter and the resurrection. Um, but the shift, I think, is more toward what, what uh, Tripp and I have been talking about. Not so much self-flagellation as the path of Lent. But self-examination and discipleship, and, and discipleship can be such a loaded word, I know, especially <laughs> among ex-evangelicals, but yeah. discipleship simply means following the way of Jesus as students of love and justice. Man, it's so interesting because especially maybe hitting on that discipleship language, I, I as you were both talking, I'm thinking, you know, um, the culture I came up with was obsessed with that word. And and built complete industries and and content and leaders who could speak to what they would say is discipleship, which oftentimes really translated to attending the church more and serving more, um, and kind of lacked this this other depth, right? And I think what's interesting, and I'm not sure how the audience feels, but I kind of feel as you were both describing such a beautiful practice of 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 self reflection, examination, seeing how how your actions have maybe intentionally or unintentionally been complicit in harm in the world and how do we partner uh, to repentance and, and to being better stewards of what we have, et cetera. I'm thinking, you know, it's so interesting that, that for a lot of us, we, because we're coming out of this evangelical framework that really the more I talk to folks like you just shows how I think surface level, so much of its language is, um, it is interesting to feel like actually it only is reconvincing me of how rich the Christian tradition is outside of that basement. That's kind of the analogy that we use because those are beautiful things. I think so many of us are looking to do. We're looking for spaces where we can, you know, think about those things on a deep level and realize our inter interconnectedness to all of humanity, as opposed to me operating in a silo. And I, oh, I said shit yesterday, so I need to repent because I may got upset. But thinking about, about about deeper issues that really affect other people and my complicity in either helping to be the healing work of that or being some of the harm in that. So is is that kind of like is is Lent making space for people to reflect? 
on those things and looking at their life? And then is there a, a connection to death as well of, you know, you mentioned a trip, like this idea of realizing like from, from, from dust, you, you came and dust, you shall return. So is it, is it also a reflection on just the fact that one day we're all going to die? Is that part of Lent? Well, I, I think beginning with a reminder of our death and it ending uh, with the conquering of death is, mm. uh, you know, it's rather specific, but like the, yeah. that sacrificial element that runs through Lent, I, I, I found that as a Baptist, how we talked about the parts of the church that fasted during Lent or gave something up for Lent and such completely missed the purpose that uh, if you ask them why they do it, <laughs> uh, it was there. <laughs> and um, in preparing for this class, uh, I I was I read Pope Francis' uh, invitation to Lent from last year, and he had this line in it that I just uh, found fascinating. I think it connects with what you're saying. He said, "Fasting makes sense only if it really chips away at our own security, and as a consequence, comes to ven- benefit someone else. May it help us cultivate the style." of the good in the good Samaritan who bent down to his brother in need and took care of him. Right. So like a lot of times the dismissal of these other traditions and parts of the church come with a way where something unique about our theology, Oh, freedom in Christ or all these kinds of things you, you throw it at it and then you miss why this practice could be an invitation. It's just one you don't know yet. Right. So Pope Francis talking about how people have even trivialized it in the Catholic church says, no, no, the point of the sacrifice is that you do what the good Samaritan did, who recognized pain, gave of his own uh, goods to benefit the other. And that when we do that, then we understand what sacrifice is. The sacrifice isn't uh, for uh, for our own glorification or to feeling pure or to outdo other people. It's actually for the lifting up of the broken. And uh, by the end of this reflection, he goes, need I remind you what Paul told the people in Philippians? That we are to have the same mind in Christ that is in or same mind that was in Christ Jesus, who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of servant, right all the way to the cross. Like so, that sacrificial invitation. Um, uh, it, it, what Pope Francis was insisting on is it is for us to be intentional with other people because we need to be called out and challenged together. We need to be reminded that the invitation of sacrifice isn't for being spiritually pompous, but becoming spiritually sensitive to the wounds of the world and becoming agents of healing and advocacy and allyship. So the, the, like sometimes getting to know what animates someone in different parts of the church can help us reframe what we hear. So that sacrificial thing, I think, is a really big deal. Um, and uh, and I think it's a helpful invitation. The uh, when when I was uh, facilitating uh, confirmation for years during Lent, I would have the uh, confirmands, uh, sometimes adults and sometimes sixteen to eighteen year olds. Say like, okay, we're going to fast from something, but what would it, what would we be fasting from if the space that is being made is space that the holiness of God comes to inhabit in our own being? And so, you know, it didn't turn out to be chocolate. Uh, sometimes uh, we let them give each other fasting. So the uh, um, mm. environmentally minded college students said, Trip, you're going to fast from meat and beer. And well, that was an experience of Lent. Uh, sometimes we fasted from all screens and you had to like physically leave notes and then attend to the people that are around you that they occupy the space from. And then what do you discover? 
right? Like then sacrificing the immediate gratification of uh, notifications, you rediscover the depth of the people that are in your home. You see how this, see how the idea functions. Yes. So it's a, uh, yeah. I don't think it is the kind of burden that I was told it was early on. Yeah, I, I, I um, really appreciate that. I thank you, Trip. That's a great reframing. I think yeah. of those words, and and I think it's really important whenever we approach Lent is to recognize those those two words, death and sacrifice, have always been part of this this holy season. Um, I I kind of want to take a perspective on it that's a little bit odd. Um, I, I'm sort of flummoxed in some way generationally by the fact that there seem to be so many younger Christians who are fascinated with death. Um, I, I, and, and that actually kind of hurts me. And it, part of it is because, uh, one, I'm in my early sixties and, and just as a warning for you guys, when you turn 60, there's a, a switch that goes off in the back of every human being's head. And that switch says, it, it turns on an instruction. And that is every single morning you wake up and you think, I'm alive hmm. and I could be dead. So you don't have to actually remind people who are over a certain age that they're going to die. That is an unnecessary reminder. Um, so, so, so that's, a part of I think Lent is that there are some people who do need to have that lifted up, but there are a whole lot of other people who don't need to have that lifted up. And as a matter of fact, death is really a frightening thing uh, for many people to have to look at, even during Lent, even though it ends with a triumph over de over over death. And that is because um, so many people in our in our world have experienced real death. Um, part of the reason I don't like talking about death is that I grew up in a household where my father's mother died when he was six years old. And my entire life was shaped by the death of a woman I never knew so long before um, I was ever even thought of. And so death to me is not like a welcome friend or an interesting reminder or a memento mori or some cool goth clothing, even though I'm wearing black today. Um, death to me is this profound robbery of, of, of our humanity that breaks our hearts, that twists our souls, that causes us to wrestle, as it did with my father, for the rest of his life with the limits of human existence and how that, how death is really the absence, as it was for him, of motherly love. And the emptiness of that and what it caused in that little boy's life and then what it caused in the life of his, his own wife and his children um, after, after himself. And so, so I don't ever want to stand in that territory of death and just say that this is, you know, uh, something we need to think about. Lots of people think about death a lot. And lots of us have been wounded by death in ways that are deep and profound and we will never actually shake. Uh, during our entire lives. And so I've actually, over the years, learned to sort of turn the story a little bit. 
And when I hear those words that the priest or the pastor says on Ash Wednesday, you are dust and to dust you shall return. And this is actually where Tripp and I sort of back toward one another, I think, taking the different angle, but we wind up in a sort of very similar place. Um, What I hear is you were created from dust and one day that's your fate is to be part of what created you again. And in effect, it's a reminder of creation and where and, and how our bodies are connected always to this ongoing um re- in this ongoing relationship with creation. And ultimately all of us were created from dust and all of us will find ourselves back as create as that matter that first created us. And so that way we're all connected. And so instead of it understanding it primarily as a story about death, I understand it as a story of creation and a return to creation that create that that makes all of us part of the same human family. And so it's in in connection that I find the deepest meaning of Lent. Why do I give something up? It's so someone else can live. Why do I choose my choose to not exercise my fullest freedoms so that others might participate freely, um, fully in the world. And so sacrifice is not something I do to shape myself, but rather sacrifice um, is an expression of that connection of our shared creation, that we are all part of the matter of creation, the stuff of the cosmos that God made us from that same stuff. And all of us will re-participate in that same stuff um, as we come to the end, when we come to the end of our lives. So, so that's maybe a little bit different way of kind of framing it, Mm. uh, but it takes those two words, death and sacrifice. And, and for me, with really what is a fear of death that has riddled my family for mm. its entire existence, um, it makes Lent a far more manageable and even welcome uh, season. Yeah. Um, I, it's interesting your first earlier statement about, you know, you're just kind of flummoxed by this uh, younger, maybe obsession with with the term death. And I've been thinking about that in my own life because, you know, I'm 34, we have two young kids and I'm I'm more and more reminded every day that, hey, you know, like there is a world where I'm not here anymore um, and that, you know, I'm on a path that like it's happening. Like I'm just on that path and nothing I can do about that. Um, And just as totally hypothetical, um, but I do wonder if, at least for me, as as I've been, been reflecting on that in my own life, that not only just my evangelical culture, but just the American culture, I don't think has a really healthy relationship. Uh, to uh, facing, you know, those moments, especially when you're a younger teenager, like you just think this is what, what life is, and there's no real good framework I was ever really equipped with to recognize that 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 this will happen. And then when when unexpected losses come, which happened in my own life, or I just saw someone the other day who I knew through the grapevine on Facebook saying that you know their spouse who's 31 years old um, has stage four cancer and won't make it 14 mm. more months. And I, my wife and I are just weeping on the keyboard and I'm, I'm almost mad. At, I'm just mad at God, right? Like where is this all powerful God I was taught about? Right. And so I, I, that's why I was kind of, you know, poking at that question because I think a lot of people 
as they move through their life and start having kids and families and start recognizing that, that, you know, things happen that are just totally unexpected that are a robbery of, of, of what is so often this human experience, um, you know, can Lent uh, help us navigate things that that all of a sudden just feel so out of our control and, and so crazy and, and ultimately, like you mentioned, Diana, rob us of, of things and shape us permanently. Um, and I really appreciate your answer. I think it's really helpful for a lot of people. So thank you for sharing that. For the Millers, movie nights were once tradition. Now Sarah could hardly get through the opening credits, not on that old couch. But one day while shopping on QVC.com, she learned Lazy Boy recliners had slimmed down a bit. And in just a few clicks, Sarah got her Lazy Boy chair and a popcorn maker and a soundbar by Bose. And with one quick trip to QVC.com, Movie Night and Sarah's Back were saved. Shop QVC.com slash podcast and use code QVC20podcast for $20 off $40 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. The, one of the things that Diana said that I I hadn't really thought this way what is it, it definitely there are people who uh, your familiarity with death, like you, you, no one knows their own death. You know, death through the death of others. Right. And, right. Um, and is, when you parent, you also know the first time each of your kids comes to know death that way. Like we get the concept of it, but sometimes it's a loss of a pet or a grandparent or a close friend or something where death becomes death. Um, and uh, um, it, and it gets this kind of ontic statu- uh, status and in, in life, and I think one of the the invitations of the reminder of it and of that dusting move uh, is the the church telling us uh, this kind of wisdom that uh, seeking to deny or escape death is ultimately avoiding the fullness of life. And where is the invitation to the fullness of life? with the gift of each breath and the grace of each day, uh, it's, it's alongside Jesus. So like, yes, they're the bookends of our, the reminder of our own finitude at the beginning. Um, and this finitude that is also the place for the encounter with the divine and the, and the conquering of death and the resurrection. But the, the narrative between is an invitation to live more intentionally and deliberately so that in in repressing, denying, or the fear of death seizing you and gripping you, uh, that you helping us avoid uh, uh, that kind of uh, uh, it helps us not reject the gift of life. There's a kind of fullness of life uh, that's only possible when you start to think about living before you die, and when death claims every day and every moment, then uh, th- those are moments you don't get back. Um, the uh, it, yeah, maybe it's fear. Maybe it's fear of yeah. death, Trip. No, I mean, I think that that was the thing that my father really, really struggled with, and that I had to figure out how to rearrange those pieces mm. um, as a as a human being in the wake of my father's own story. Yeah. Um, so, go ahead. I, I I just think that it's not just it's not death, but it, it mm. that twists it because yeah. death is just 
this thing, mm-hmm. but it's the, the, the fear that grips us, you know, yes. and the, and wanting to push it the, away. The, the, the sting of death. I, like that's one of those Pauline turn okay. of phrases I really like because it's they, like yeah. to, to, uh, to, for death to lose its sting um, actually enables you to live more deeply before you die. Right. And, and I think that, um, and, and, you know, one of the things I learned, um, uh, the more I spent time studying, um, and in school and such is how I misread so much of the conversation, uh, in the new Testament about death and life. Um, like eternal life was something that happened after you die. Um, these kinds of things that, uh, the point of eat of our finite existence is to secure our place elsewhere. And I think the more you learn about Jesus in his own context and what Paul is trying to communicate about the power of the resurrection, that, uh, that, that the gospel is not just a promise of new beginnings after our ending. That's also a promise of newness of life in the present. And the, yeah. it, it, the means to getting there isn't by seizing our own security. It's by joining the movement of God and working for the uh, salvation of the world, like in, in redemptive material senses there, right? Like to, for the thriving and flourishing of life. Right. Yeah. I, I had friends um, probably, I would say this was mostly in seminary. I remember this one guy that I knew very well in seminary, really liked him. And every time we got to Lent, he would always say, Oh, I love Lent. <laughs> and I was like, are you nuts? You know, <laughs> and, and oh, he'd go to church and he'd be crying, and uh, you know, it was his spirituality. And there are yeah. people like that. But one of the things that I do feel about our culture right now is that there's a way in which death has been turned into a kind of a hobby or a fad, mm. and that's actually another way of deni- of taking away its sting. You know, is is this sort of you know sort of ridicule of it in effect um, by I don't know if worship's the right word, but, you know, people putting out giant skeletons on their lawn and, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's like mocking it. Um, But I'm not quite sure if that's, I I don't think that's where Lent's going. Hmm. Um, And I I do kind of worry about that because it it seems like there's a, a diminishment of that profound absence i can't i can't actually look at those skeletons on people's lawns and because uh, i always think to myself have they have they ever really lost anything and right. usually the, the those skeletons are on you know the suburban houses in very wealthy fairfax county that are right around me and i think you know what is the experience of loss or absence here in that utter sense of the end of everything um, you know, and, and so, so I, I, you know, I suppose it's a little cultural cause we live in this sort of neo medieval kind of Christianity right now. There's a whole bunch of people who basically think it's, you know, 1329 and dancing skeletons and, uh, <laughs> you know, all this kind of stuff. And I was like, really people, we did that about a thousand years ago or 800 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I'm not I'm not up for that again. <laughs> well, I do I do feel like maybe the opposite extreme of, of what you're describing, which I, I understand. You know, in in New Jersey, when Halloween happens, you know, it's it's everywhere and where I live. Um, is is I think for some of us like this evangelical megachurch culture that just you know, well, just don't think about it and just keep inhaling right. the sugar rush. And uh, hey, death's defeated, so uh, you know, God's good, and just pray for that blessing. 
And then when when tragedy really when when death visits the doorstep, right? Like you mentioned, Diana, of of your life, um, all of a sudden that those happy, feel good moments of these intense worship moments just fall incredibly flat because it's like, well, um, I did all that and this still happened, and it also the the hope for a future where all things are reconciled doesn't solve the my my immense hurt and loss and grief now because that person in this moment is not coming back. And if I'm being honest with myself personally, I don't know with how, how this all works at the end. I don't know if I'll see them again. And so I think a lot of people find themselves in that environment for so much of their life, have that that moment where, where, where death knocks on their door or someone in their family's door and, and the capacity that they have to deal with it is totally, it's stunted because of this sugar rush industry of just Keep build, you know, have the experience, have the worship moment, listen to this pastor, listen to this word. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, I've avoided this for so long. And now I, I'm forced to look at it. And what do I do with it? Right. I think that's maybe the opposite of the spectrum as well. Lent is like practice for that moment. Mm. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I think is that there's just both of those are probably the cultural problems with death right now. On one hand, we have a culture that sort of glorifies death as a hobby. Um, oh, it's cool. You know, look at look at me. Look at, you know, look at I can embrace the darkness. Right. Um, and then there's the other one uh, that is just what you say, you yes. know, is that, oh, well, Jesus, Jesus was raised. And so there's no there is no sting in death. It's all gone. It's all good. Uh, we'll just go ahead and keep living our lives. And then there's going to be the resurrection. Woohoo! You know, and, right, and right, right. maybe we'll even get raptured before we die. <laughs> God willing, so we, Diana, God willing. <laughs> so we won't have to go through it. And right. that would be really neat. Um, yeah. You can tell I actually did spend time in evangelicalism. You do. Um, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and so those are sort of the outlier problems. One yeah. is th- there's this this sort of rush of the of of absence and despair and all that you know and let's embrace it and and then there's this other one that's let's let's ignore it you know and in the middle Mm. there's this space of of personal and communal reflection to practice what happens when we encounter the deepest emptiness that the universe can throw in our faces and for christians that deep emptiness is the torture of Jesus by imperial forces on the cross. And so we're practicing that. Do you think that, um, wow. uh, I, I, I think it might be helpful, Diana, for you to share a bit about why then look at saints, right? If Lent is, <laughs> is new business for certain parts of the church, the idea that you would use the word <laughs> saints is another, but just listening to that tension from two directions, uh, it, it makes sense, right? Like that part of of looking at the story of Christ is also looking at the story of Christ's body and the people that have made uh, continue to make it up in history. So, as a church historian, if people are new to thinking, even with the category saints, let alone uh, looking at their yeah. lives as ways of reflecting about our own, um, how would you kind of like frame that? Yeah, it's good. Um, if if Lent is practice for this incredibly intense business of facing the ultimate of loss, um, and then 
eventually the victory. Uh, what, what, what you always need when you're practicing something is you need mentors, guys, and teachers. <laughs> and effectively, that's what saints are. I mean, there's a lot of uh, silliness around saints, um, you know, thinking that they're particularly holy or that they resisted all sin, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, but I just always think as a historian, as saints, as people who have walked this way before, and there are people who have walked this way before and done it with extraordinary courage, with um, surprising hopefulness, with remarkable love, all of these different um, virtues that make us gasp. Um, and so I want to learn from those people because I haven't walked this way before and I've only got one chance to practice. I mean, <laughs> before, <laughs> before we get to the, the, the final show here. And yeah. so, so that's to me, Trip. when I think about what we're doing is that we're offering up uh, stories of these folks who can serve as friends, guides, mentors, um, practitioners, teachers who have walked a particular way before us. I think that's so helpful because again, you know, just speaking from, from our perspective, um, we as evangelicals have no framework for that. You know, the, the, the saints that we're given are like Matt Chandler and Francis Chan. And I mean, that, that's just who it is. I mean, these, these are the people that you're just taught here. They are like, these are the ones doing this thing the right way. Uh, and maybe John Wesley, if you're really out there, I don't know. And so I just <laughs> think that it's so helpful to have people like yourself and trip who are helping people understand that. Like, again, the, 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 the house is so much bigger and the people that we can look up to have done such amazing things in ways that are way beyond beyond the tradition that maybe you've been steeped in. Is that why you're calling it American Saints in the Cynical Age, trying to, to, to use what's happening in America and our cultural moment of just cynicism and looking at saints to help us navigate better paths forward? Mm-hmm. I'm letting Trip go with that because that's oh. subtitle well, his. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> I, I would say yes. And like, if I'm answering the question to a lot of the people I've encountered because uh, we've hung out before on the internet, uh, Tim, uh, and some of them that came to beer camp, uh, when I think yeah. of the cynical age and how it shows up for those uh, that are wrestling with their evangelical inheritance, uh, so many yeah. of them sit here in this moment and go, I was just, I was told about character and virtue. I was told about loving the neighbor and all these kinds of things. And then MAGA and then right. George Floyd. Right. And then, and then, and when you respond to that with this uh, conscience that you thought comes from the Holy Ghost, right? Like that the love of Christ makes you go, oh, WTF, we might be missing something, right? And then when your tribe goes, no, nah, you need to, you need to, you need to get in line. There's so many people right. that I see finding the stuff you're doing. And then they say, look, I'm learning this history. I'm reading these books. I'm wrestling with these ideas. I got questions. I'm told not allowed to ask them. And then I'm sitting here and people are looking at me like, well, you're not in us anymore. Get behind me, Satan. Right? Like these kinds of things. And underneath it is this, oh. this moment where you go, if we just know the history of America, and if we're just honest about the history of the church, we have run a cover-up job when we told our story. There are obvious historic injustices that run through both and they relate to each other 
and like the way y'all have been unpacking with scholars around Christian nationalism, that story, or the way they continue to cover up and justify it while looking at every, every little speck in the other, other's eye and calling them demonic, like all that stuff sitting there. And you're like, then what in the world is worth being a part of? What story is it worth living into? America's bankrupt. The church is bankrupt. And um, I'm just glad Tim channeled my anger on an Instagram moment. That's, you know, and, and so like if you're sitting there and then you can't shake Jesus. Right. And you go, I right. don't know if saying no to the ugliness and things I'm learning about means I have to set the crucified one aside. Then I think this practice of Lent, I think the stories of saints that lived in this country with its complicated legacy, that has engaged parts of history of the church with complicated legacy, looking at them is a way of training ourselves not to just have the story that binds us together be one of cynicism, of judgment, but to say, yes, those criticisms are true, but is there something worth telling? Is there something worth sharing? Is there stories in the larger body of Christ that inspire me to live aware of the past, but towards a more just, equitable, and beautiful future? And and I think part of the gift of this framing that we're doing uh, is that each week there are these different uh, different themes like visionaries and prophets or right. mystics and utopians, martyrs, catalysts and activists, like these kinds of themes where we are, will each be able to bring out someone from the church history in America and go, let me tell you their story, an honest version, but one that remains inspiring to me. And then we'll each tell them. And then the group that are there, people from all over the church will share the 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 figures that have inspired them. And the goal isn't to go, let's be, let's repress the ugly. Let's deny the violence that's there. The, the, the desire is in Lent, let us with honest eyes and humble voices look back and say, the beauty that we see in the Christ has been lived out in these lives. And we want to raise them up because if we can't shake Jesus, we can tell the story of Christ and his body in, in, in ways that inspire us to be part of God's response to the historic systemic injustice, to be part of the church's seeking a more beautiful embodiment in the present. Uh, the stories of the saints, um, when we raise them up, are the stories that we hope come to animate more of our life. And that is a counter to cynicism, um, but it isn't repressing the real issues that are there. At least <laughs> that's what we hope right. happens. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's, yeah, that's, it's so incredible. I gotta be honest with you, you know, both. I mean, that is, um, so needed, uh, at first, but I think so many people in our spaces are, are like so hungry for that. You know, I mean, we, we try and be very transparent. We, we, we do our best to say, Hey, listen, we want to help you explore different rooms, but that's not my specialty. So we'll do our theology zoom group and bring in trip fuller or, you know, Adam Clark to do something or, 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 Hey, well, let's do a zoom group together or whatever it is, you know, to try and help people explore. But, but ultimately people need spaces where they can really be seen like yes i mean trip you said it just so well in that in that in that in that monologue there of just expressing like so many of us went what the hell with maga and then our own tradition said what are you crazy get out of here like you're not you're you know you're woke or something like that we're like what are you talking about you know like where where are these words even coming from but a lot of us who maybe we can use the term deconstructed it's not my favorite term but many of us who found ourselves in those spaces when you know i i can't shake this jesus thing i can't shake this 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 
this resurrection thing. I can't, I can't shake this stuff despite feeling completely abandoned by my own faith tradition. Um, and, and how do I not stay cynical? You know, I think that anger when channeled can be a game changer for so many. It's been a game changer for me, for our work, but I think if left just to sit, it just becomes bitterness. You know, it just, it just, it starts getting moldy and the allergy starts hopping in there. It just, it starts stinking. And I think that, 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 that we have to be able to recognize that a lot of us are angry. We have a re a reason, a legitimate reason to be angry, but we're angry because, because we, we believe that the church can be better. And also we want to be better. We want to carry on the Christian legacy, but man, we just can't do it in that basement. So I really think that, that, that this class, especially for the audience listening, this is such a shoo-in. If you engage in our content and in our work and you're always thinking like, where do I do? Where do I go? How do I think more broadly about the Christian tradition and, and, and learn about people who I never were, never was taught about, who are, who are changing the world in their own context? Not perfectly, but, but we can look at them honestly, right? Where do I go? And it's like, here you go, friends. I mean, seriously, sign up for this class. You can pay nothing if you can't afford it. You can pay whatever you want. Besides a million to one dollars, you can't pay that. We will, we will <laughs> kick you out. But you know, this is just a. a, a I think it makes a lot of sense that we're doing this podcast together because I feel like one really feeds the other. You know, and I, I, I think what what you both are going to offer at this class is going to be for so many people hopefully breathing in new life to their faith. And they realize, oh, thank God, I don't have to stay in this space thinking that, you know, Trumpism is the only answer. Or, I mean, Trip, we just recorded a, a podcast response uh, where, where, where the person with a straight face said, you cannot be Democrat and be a Christian. I mean, legitimately with a straight face said that. And the person goes, amen, brother. You know, so so people, that's all they know, right? For somebody like me, you're like, wait, I, 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 can't, I can't be pro-choice and be a Christian? And having folks like you say, actually, Come on, like, like let let's take this stuff seriously. There are better ways forward. I think is going to be a game changer. So I'm looking forward to the class. When does the class actually start? February 27th, the Monday oh, right. after Ash Wednesday. So the end of the month. I got to post this thing ASAP then, so we get this out there. I have yes, one more do. question, <laughs> uh, and I will. <laughs> I have one more question, maybe that I, I think is also important to our conversation before we start landing this plane. And again, Diana and Trip, thanks for making time and coming on and and just sharing so much wisdom with us. You know, one thing that I think a lot of people are struggling with is this sense of community. Uh, I get DMs all the time. Where do I go? I don't have friends anymore. You know, my, my, I, I, all I have is is this space online. How does I mean? How does one practice or participate in Lent when maybe they don't have a physical embodied community around them to walk through them, you know, or to, to 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 walk with them through this? What does that look like? Do you think? Oh gosh, well, I I would try to find someplace. Yeah. You know, even if it's just sneaking to the local Lutheran, not Missouri Synod Lutheran, but evangelical, and don't be scared by the word evangelical here, evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Yeah. Yeah. Evangelical in the Lutherans means something entirely different than it means for your local mega church. <laughs> it just means Protestant. <laughs> Thank in you for Germany. clarifying. It just, yeah, it just means Protestant. <laughs> it just means Protestant. The, the church right? where we had beer camp was a uh, ELCA Lutheran church. Even, oh, yeah. they were great. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, you don't have to change forever. You don't have to make a commitment for life or anything. Lent is six weeks. Go find some nice group of Episcopalians, Lutherans, 
go to a Catholic church and don't tell them you're not Catholic, whatever. <laughs> um, just go visit and see how another part of the Christian family participates um, in these weeks. Um, and and you might be surprised that, you know, there's probably going to be older people there and there are going to be older people that if you're younger and you walk in, they'll all stare at you. But you know what? They're staring at you because they like you already because you're young. <laughs> <laughs> And they're going to be really happy to see you, but they're going to be really curious about your story. And they're going to say incredibly awkward things to you. And they're going to try to get you to teach Sunday school and all that kind of stuff. But just, just smile and be nice and answer their questions and recognize that they haven't seen somebody in their thirties for a really long time, <laughs> except for their own grandchildren who never go to church. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so sneak in, accept the fact that there are going to be very awkward, nice people in that room. Yeah. And there are going to be people who have been on this journey for a long time and that they're going to be glad you showed up. You don't have to stay forever. See what six weeks will do to shape, to shape and maybe reshape, um, how you understand these things, um, about life and death. And then ultimately, about what happens on Good Friday and what happens on Easter Sunday. I love that. I love that that it seems like Lent helps us um, have more context for why Good Friday and why you know Resurrection Sunday happens. And I think that's so helpful for so many people who maybe are just used to like. I mean, my again, my context is I spent weeks preparing for the big Easter service uh, on the drums and, and producing a huge mega church production because that's when all the people who don't usually attend come out. We have to try and get them saved. You know that, that it's our Super Bowl essentially. And I think that uh, you know having a framework of understanding how Lent and even the church calendar, more big picture, helps us really see um, a, a different emphasis on why these 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 church holidays exist is really helpful. So I, I, I love that. Well, if you really want to see something extraordinary on the evening before Easter Sunday, Holy mm -hmm. Saturday, we have a thing in these liturgical churches called Easter Vigil. And what it is, is sitting in a dark church uh, for about two or two and a half, maybe three hours and listening to the entire story of salvation they say that liberal Christians don't read the Bible. That's not true. <laughs> we listen to the entire Bible basically be read the night before Easter with candles. And, and so we discover this whole story of God's redemptive dream for the cosmos uh, through that service liturgically. And then at the height of the service where the, the, there's finally the reading about Jesus being raised from the dead. All the lights come on in the churches. The music plays. There are bells that go off and we launch into uh, feeding one another the bread and wine. It is not a freaking Super Bowl because you're not just watching it. You're invited into the depth of God's mystery of God's working with the people, with God's own people through time. And then you're invited to a table where everyone is fed and everyone is welcome. And so it's not about watching or trying to rope someone in. It's about helping us to feel the power of new life 
through the darkness. And so um, it's an entirely different kind of framework. And we're the best kept secret in America. Noted. I promise no guy is going to jump out of a tomb (laughs) (laughs) with with a track. (laughs) Are you saying that, are you saying, Diana, that there are no altar calls with 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 a, a Nord pad behind it, you know, just inviting people to pray this prayer. Is that what you're saying does not happen at these services? Right. No altar calls, only invitations to dinner. I I, I sign me up for that. I'm in. <laughs> if you're Googling, I would just say it is perfectly reasonable to go on and check uh worship services that are that are online. Um the the God is everywhere, and if you can't find people together with in whatever town you're in, you can gather there. You can also skim them rather quickly without them being live to see who actually comments in it and find ways to be present. Uh, here's my secret code, because I, when I travel a lot, I like if I don't know someone in the city, look up even songs for, at Episcopal churches because they have a beautiful choir. They sing the scriptures and songs, and there's no one preaching. So as someone who judges sermons, very intensely um, when you get the scripture readings and all the music in a beautiful place. And uh, like the, the uh, only voice that ever speaks by itself is doing something a Christian wrote hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Then I feel like that's like a safe place for the, the overthinker and hypercritical kind. Um, and, and, <laughs> and, uh, and here's the other perk. If you, if you have kids and you say to yourself, Dude, I ain't trying no church till I know they aren't going to corrupt my children. And I don't I don't want to go in there and then find out there's I'm going to have them sitting next to me and everyone staring at me. If it, it's easy to sneak to even song because you can just go, you can go, you're like, oh, I'll let my partner watch them, let the parents watch them. And you can just go and sit in there by yourself. Sunday morning's real hard to rally up uh, babysitting or something. You can go sit in there and listen, and it's beautiful. Um, and if you it in the other perk of liturgical church is on Easter is uh the 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 sunrise service um the oldest oldest openings to the liturgy do what is my when i let it my favorite part of the liturgical cycle is what what do you announce the resurrection to first all of creation and so you it, it, the, the, it takes the opening prayer the earliest easter vigil prayer we have is announcing to creation and it starts naming different parts like animals and hills and water and um, when you sit there and think about just how narrow uh, a lot of individualistic uh, uh, supernatural dualist, where only the soul's escaping to get to eternal life or whatever, and then you realize that the earliest prayers we have for, for Easter morning is the church voicing the celebration of all creation that Christ is raised. It is a proclamation that all the little dust that anyone has ever had in them and that anyone is all of God's creatures has a future uh, through the resurrection of the Christ. And then it's really funny when your evangelical friends that are supernatural dualists and only the soul is saved tell you you don't believe in the resurrection. You're like, what are you talking about? I got up to help announce on behalf of the dolphins that he's risen indeed. <laughs> and you're talking to me, I don't believe in the physical. Re- I just said it for every freaking piece of dust has a future in the God who Jesus called Abba. And now you're going to go playing that stupid video camera question with me. You, I think you've missed the point. But if that's what you need, go for it. You know, like, 
I, I just say that because I know I'm just thinking of how people respond to when Diana and I just say how we like doing it. Then they think those little, little things that evangelicals were told. This totally. is why all these people aren't Christian. And I'm just telling you the earliest Christian prayers for Easter. And if you go to one of our churches and you hang out, you're told, read this because you have to tell God, thank you for all living things that Christ was raised from the dead. And, um, Anyway, well, well, trip, trip. I, I, I just want to say it sounds like what you're saying is that the earliest church announcements were were written by a bunch of liberal hippie yeah. environmentalists uh, who just want to destroy America. Right. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm not sure. If I, I'm not sure if I can trust them, considering that that they're probably undercover Marxists most likely. So, uh, I'll have to pray about that and get back okay. to you. <laughs> I, I I actually have a prayer from St. Basil of Caesarea from the 430s that uh, matches what Tripp says. And for those who don't <laughs> and know. And it sounds like it was written in 1962 yeah. about environmentalism. And, and, and Basil, uh. Basil was one of the individuals that worked out the metaphysics of the Trinity. So I'm just saying, like, That's I know exactly evangelicals right. believe the Trinity. But they don't usually know how it works. But I was just letting you know, she was saying... Like, you know, the person that helped figure out how it works and described it, that guy did it. it was, you know. It's- <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, listen, I, I, I promised all of us that we wouldn't go much past an hour. and We're really uh, up, up to that mark. But I want to say, again, Diana and Tripp, thank you for making time and kind of giving us a little teaser into, into this class. It starts February 26th. Is that what you said, Diana? Uh, 27th, whatever 27th. the Monday is. Okay, well, I'll, I'll put all of that in the show notes. I'll put a link so people can sign up. Uh, if people are interested 27th. in learning more about your work, uh, Trip and Diana, where do you exist? Are you guys on social media? Do you have your own platforms? Go ahead, Diana, first. Plug away where people can find you and follow your work. Well, I'm on old-fashioned Facebook since <laughs> I mostly work with main <laughs> with mainline Protestants. That's what they still live on them. that yeah, I know that form of social media. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I have recently gone over to post as well, but I, I'm still figuring that one out. Uh, the main place to find me is Substack. I have a newsletter called The Cottage. And if you want a community of friends who are having a different kind of conversation, there are 33,000 people who are part of my Substack community and they talk to one another. It's about encouraging each other. It's about seeing Christianity differently. And it's not about outrage. It's not just a sort of, you know, standard brand, conventional left-wing stuff that they told you to expect in your evangelical church out of people like me. (laughs) It's about beauty and justice and love and community and really, truly trusting. Uh, that God is with us here in this life, in this world, and we can live uh, with greater beauty and power. Love that. Trip? Oh, just Google Trip Fuller. T-R-I. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. My bad. Sorry. No, trip Guys, just Google com. Trip Fuller. He'll come right up. Trip, there's not a lot of me. Um, there, but TripFuller.com. Uh, two piece, not one. And uh, if you want to join the class, EmptyAlters.com. And, um, you know, the, the other thing I would say is that, that people listening should get excited to watch, uh, the torturous two hours that Tim put me through while <laughs> having me watch a video podcast from turning points USA for Jesus. America. Oh. Yeah. 
Oh no! Hey, you, Tripp, this was your idea. Don't 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 mislead people thinking I somehow forced well, you. You came to me it. and said, "Hey, I thought, I thought we were this. gonna watch something where I was like, oh, helping people understand the other intellectual options for Christianity." And you brought on, uh, like, oh, Diana, did you know Virgil Walker uh, and Johnny yeah, Root from just, Turning Point America? Yeah. Turning Point. Bank. Well, did yeah. you know that Episcopalians yeah. um, say they're serving the Lord, but their Lord is Satan? I didn't. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know. Uh, they after labeling most Christians in America uh, serving their Lord Satan, they also proceeded to talk about how it's really important to uh, witness with gentleness and kindness of heart. And I just said, "Wow, wow, there you go." So I, I people should look for that. That'd be that'd be exciting. It'd be the opposite <laughs> of this conversation. Well, you're welcome, Trip. I hopefully we do that again, and hopefully, friends, we have this conversation again, and, and you, you know, we we make another podcast happen. So, again, Diana and Trip, thanks for making time. I really appreciate it. We will put all that information in the show notes, and hopefully, uh, folks from our community hop on over and are part of the class. So, we'll talk again soon. All righty. Well, we love new evangelicals. We need new ones. Really. Yeah. Oh, I'm. I'm, I'm <laughs> Thank Some you. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying not to be just a rage machine, but my God, every day I read the news and I'm like. Damn it, there's so much to talk about. So I'm trying to get better, though. I'm trying to get we better. We promise right, we will not we'll pick more. John MacArthur as an American saint. <laughs> oh, my God. Jesus. I'm triggering you, Tim. You're supposed to end the conversation. Oh, people are driving while, while listening yeah. to this conversation. I'm going to end it now. Goodbye. These days, having versatile clothing you can wear anywhere is a must. That's why American Giant makes clothing that fits into your life and is made to last. Plus, with an impressive selection of staples to choose from, there's something for everyone. And it's all made right here in the USA. Find your new wardrobe staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code WA23 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code WA23. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that.